Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of Outside the Screen, a podcast all about screens in the lives of children and families. I'm law professor and child rights advocate, Liz Hansley. And I'm child psychiatrist and stand-up comedian, Dr. Kim Lee. We're bringing you the podcast because we know just how hard it is to raise kids in a technology-centric world and we want to help. What have we got lined up for this episode, Liz? Today on the show, you're going to hear a view of Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, and we'll be shooting the breeze about terms and conditions and how much children and young people really understand about those. But first up, we've got... Paper Round, our regular segment where we look at the research that's coming out and demystify it so that it can better inform your family's decisions about how you engage with screens. Today, we're discussing a study from China about self-esteem and addictive smartphone use. What is the role of anxiety and self-control in that dynamic? So, stay tuned. As Kim said, today in Paper Round, we're looking at some research out of China about self-esteem. Kim, why'd they do this research? Well, social media and self-esteem is a hot topic. We've got teenagers all over the world interacting online, getting likes and commenting and posting up pictures. And, you know, when you get lots of attention online, that can feel really good. So they did this study to figure out whether self-esteem and your anxiety and your ability to control your uh, smartphone use led to um, addictive smartphone use or not. Okay. And how did they go about figuring that out? So the researchers went to uh, two high schools and two primary schools in a city in China, and they looked at approximately 1,100 adolescents from those schools. Yeah, that's a few. Yeah, it's quite a big study, and they gave them surveys with paper and pencil, and they measured their self-esteem, addictive smartphone use, anxiety, and self-control, and tried to make some correlation between those factors. Hmm. What kind of questions did they ask to figure out whether somebody had good self-esteem or not? Well, they asked them questions like, I like myself, I'm a good kid, I can do things, mm-hmm. other people think I'm funny, people like me, I think I'm rather good looking. And they asked them to rate that um, from one to five. And they also asked them about their smartphone use, such as um, I find myself using my cell phone longer than intended to, feeling anxious and lost. I'll be upset without my smartphone. Feelings of withdrawal or escape, such as when I feel down, I used to play on my smartphone to make myself feel better. And uh, questions like, um, with regards to the anxiety, I feel anxious when raising questions in class and asking them to rate their ability to self-control as well. And then, as you said, they were looking at what what are the relationships between those four factors. So Mm -hmm. uh, if if you have problematic smartphone use, are you more likely to have poor self-esteem or high self-esteem, that sort of thing? So the results showed that if you had good self-esteem, you're less likely to be anxious. And if you had low self-esteem, you're more likely to be anxious and then use your smartphone to compensate for those feelings. And then that placed you at risk of addictive smartphone use. So excessive use in order to make yourself feel better. Okay, and so then, it's a, a three-step thing, basically. You're, you're, you have low self-esteem, you get anxious, and then you use your phone too much. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 
And then there was also um, self-control, uh, which they didn't really explain uh, how someone develops self-control, but it seemed as though regardless of whether you had low self-esteem or high self-esteem, uh, self-control actually mediated whether you had addictive smartphone use or not because if you've got low self-esteem and good self-control, you might be able to convince yourself that you're not so bad after all. And then also that led on to your better ability to control your smartphone use. Right. Okay. So there's self-control of your negative thoughts that lead you to bad smartphone use and then also negative, uh, sorry, um, and then self-control of the smartphone use itself. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And for teenagers with low self-control, their anxiety level was relatively high regardless of their self-esteem. And of course, that would lead to more smartphone mm. use. Okay. So how do we bottle self-control and get that out there into the population? <laughs> Yeah, well, they made some suggestions in the conclusion in that instead of just restricting a teenager's smartphone use, maybe we should be offering them mindfulness techniques, behavioral management and awareness techniques, and social skills, which mm. are programs that are available out there. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe that should just, just be seen as a normal thing that goes with when you get a phone rather than, you know, some sort of pathologized <laughs> thing or, you know, you need to go and get help with this. You know, yeah. when, when a child starts learning to drive, the parent sits next to them. So, you know, maybe when they get a phone, they need to learn the, these other techniques to manage the um, the phone use. Well, maybe all smartphones should have the meditation app installed or a few vouchers to the yoga studio down the road. Yeah, well, why not? Do you use a meditation app? I actually listen to uh, my meditation teacher who has a SoundCloud um, account and I listen to her meditations and okay. uh, her name is Jennifer Hill and she has a platform called Right Brain Liaisons. Okay, well, leave the money on the fridge, Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> cool, right. Um, so... Do you have any reservations about what they were finding there? Is anything you know, not, not ring true for you or did it ring true? This study does make sense to me in terms of self-esteem. I guess it could explain better how does one get good self-esteem and how does someone develop good self-control. Okay, so that those connections that they've found are quite believable and yeah, they, they are intuitive really, aren't they? Yeah. I, I think the fact that they have made the link between the three things is especially interesting, the fact that you, you've got self-esteem, self-control and, and smartphone use and, or, and anxiety as well and, and the idea that those things are sort of all interconnected, not just that they all predict a certain kind of smartphone use but that that they affect each other as well is, is really interesting and not something that I would have thought of necessarily and certainly worth thinking some more about but the fact that all all of this is underpinned by self-control really you know helps you think well okay you know as a parent here is here's the conversation that I need to have um, it's about you know you you're you know, you're good enough without this you know maybe yeah. to, to help with the self-esteem yeah that seems to then lead back to better smartphone use too. And and so what about um, when you're practicing as a psychiatrist and you get a, a, a patient come in and say, I'm using my phone too much, is this, uh, this article going to help you? Well, it comes back down to whether you find something really rewarding or is it whether it's simply just a quick reward. 
and so social media and smartphones are very good and convenient at delivering instantaneous rewards to us, but really, is it truly rewarding? Mm. Well, rewarding is a really interesting concept, isn't it? And, and something that you know, maybe young people can start thinking about and that could be quite useful for them. All right, well, we'll post the uh, details of that article in the show notes if anybody wants to look it up and find out more about it. But meanwhile, we're going to move on to the next segment. So thanks, Kim. Thank you. Well, there were a couple of pretty interesting thoughts from Kim about the kinds of rewards we really need and the kind we get from screen use. The paper was by Feng Gao and colleagues, and the title is Self-Esteem and Addictive Smartphone Use, The Mediator Role of Anxiety and the Moderator Role of Self-Control. It was published in the journal Children and Youth Services Review. Full details in the show notes. And now it's time for our movie review. And Patrick is going to tell us why Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs is recommended for children ages six and up. And also maybe why it's called that. Hi, I'm Patrick Fung, and I'm here with some information from the CMA review of Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. I'll tell you what the movie is about and what elements led the reviewers to recommend parental guidance for children under six, as well as some suggestions for things in the movie you might want to discuss with your kids. Cloudy the Chance of Meatballs is an animated fantasy from 2009, loosely based on Ron and Judy Barrett's 1978 book by the same name. It tells the story of Flint Lockwood, voiced by Bill Hader, a young scientist trying to make the ultimate invention with the hope of upgrading his status from local geek to a popular and well-respected member of the Swallow Falls community. Flint has been tormented and doubted by many people throughout his life, including his father, James Kahn, who struggles to understand his son and to show he cares. Flint's only firm believer was his mother. However, after her death, when he was 10 years old, Flint was left with only her inspiring words and her gift of a white scientist coat to encourage his ingenuity. The failure of the town's local sardine export company has meant that the residents of Swallow Falls are forced to rely solely on sardines for their livelihood. When Flynn finally succeeds in inventing a machine that turns rain into food, he is instantly famous and praised as a hero for saving the town from inevitable financial ruin. Mayor Shelbourne, Bruce Campbell, is particularly keen to capitalize on the concept of food falling from the sky. In the hope of making his town and himself the biggest and most powerful in the world. With the mayor's greed and Flynn's need to please, the two create a machine that ensures smorgasbord of delectable delights rain down on the town three times a day, every day. It is not long, however, before the food begins to get bigger and bigger, and Flynn grows increasingly concerned about the safety of the machine 
and to residents of the town. When Flint attempts to shut down the machine, he is stopped by the mayor, and the battle begins as Flint and a few friends attempt to save the town from ultimate food doom. There is some physical violence and personal abuse in this movie. For example, when Flint attempts to stop the weather maker from making more food storms, the mayor of the town is aggressive towards him, throwing objects at him and the machinery to stop him. Other examples are in the review on the CMA website. There are also some scenes that aren't exactly violent, but could still be scary to children. Under sixes, could be concerned about the food storms, which show things like a spaghetti and meatball hurricane, where cars, buildings, and people are hit, crushed, and blown about. The reference to the death of Flynn's mother when he was only 10 years old could also be upsetting for this group. For these reasons, the CMA reviewers recommend parental guidance for children who are five years and under. The Cloudy the Chance of Meatballs is a unique animated film with many funny characters and scenes that are sure to entertain children and adults alike. The main message from the movie is to believe in yourself as a unique person with unlimited potential. Values in this movie that you may wish to reinforce with children include integrity and honesty. This movie could also give your family the opportunity to discuss certain attitudes and behaviours and their real-life consequences, such as school bullying and teasing, greed for power and gluttony, and the importance of healthy eating. Cloud the Chance of Meatballs is available on Netflix, Binge, Foxtel Now, Google Play, Apple TV, and Prime Video. And the CMA reviewers recommend parental guidance for children under six. You can find a more detailed review on the CMA website. And when Patrick talks about the CMA website, that's childrenandmedia.org.au or Children and Media Australia. You can find the reviews by clicking on the Movie Reviews tab. Then you can sort the list or search by title, alphabetically, by age suitability, by classification, or by date added. All of the reviews are prepared by people with training in child development, and they cover every G and PG title released in Australian cinemas since 2002, as well as selected M-rated movies and some pre-2002 ones that are available on streaming services. There are also reviews of game-style apps and apps that may appeal to young children. Again, it's www.childrenandmedia.org.au You might also like to join the CMA Facebook community. That's facebook.com forward slash Australian Council on Children and the Media, all one word. More details later on how to keep in touch and give feedback. And now it's time to have a chat about our policy development of the day. Liz and I are going to have a chat about a recent report of some research about how children and young people engage with terms and conditions on social media websites. So Liz, children's privacy has been discussed a lot at the moment. And the main issue is whether they are giving informed consent to the various ways their data might be collected and used by big tech companies. Yeah. 
A recent report had a good hard look at the terms and conditions, the T's and C's that we all are supposedly meant to agree to when we sign up for these apps and services. And Reset Australia, a, an NGO, came up with a really interesting report and had some interesting findings. Liz, what can you tell us about this report and the organisation that put this out? Reset Australia is the local branch of an international NGO that works to raise awareness and advocate for better policy to address digital threats to Australian democracy, which is an interesting kind of angle, I think. Um, as you say, we talk about privacy a lot, and privacy is one of those things. Everybody believes in it. Everybody wants it. Everybody thinks it's a good thing. But there's a more interesting question as to why. What it is it that makes it so important and linking it to democracy is a really useful thing, I think, because obviously if we're having our privacy invaded, it makes it all the harder for us to participate freely in democratic debate and so on. And I think that's one of the reasons why Reset is so concerned about this. So anyway, they are particularly interested in what happens with children's privacy, um, like we all are. And so they set out to do some research and it's staged research. I'll come to that in a minute, but it's research on just how this all works in the real world. We talk about terms and conditions like it's all this sort of nice, neat process where we get told what the terms and conditions are and we think about it and we agree to it, but we know it doesn't work that way in real life and they set out to have a really realistic picture of just what it really does look like. It's really scary, isn't it, when you think about fake news and how easily people can be manipulated on social media. What kind of research did they do that the report is based on? Well, they surveyed young people to find out what they do and what they think and how they feel about all of this stuff. Mm. And that's one really interesting aspect to it. They also looked at the actual terms and conditions of 10 of the most popular platforms with young people. And they assessed those terms and conditions for the reading age that would be required to read and understand them and also the time needed to read them. They, they went through that very systematically and very scientifically, if you like. They also looked at just how the terms and conditions are presented, how they're designed, where they turn up on the website. Like, for example, they found that of these 10 services, there are 69 related documents. That's documents related to privacy in terms and conditions and so on. 69 documents across the 10 wow. platforms. Yeah. And of those, only 22 were displayed on sign-up. So if you look around, you can find all these other documents that tell you sort of what your rights and liabilities are under these platforms if you become a member. But yeah, only 22 of them were visible on sign-up, which is pretty telling, isn't it? Yeah, so it's not right there in front of your face for you to read that you have to try and search actively for them. Yeah, yeah. So yep. we have enough enough trouble getting people to read the things that are actually there, let alone the things that aren't there that they'd have to go mm. looking for. Yeah. So, Liz, what did they find out about the reading level required to understand the T's and C's? It was a pretty straightforward finding. Of the 10 platforms they were looking at, nine of the T's and C's would have required a university education to understand them. The 10th one, they said, if you're in late high school, it would be okay. Considering some of these apps, young kids or young teenagers are using them, they will probably skip through those or not even notice that the uh, T's and C's are there. Yeah, and the thing is, even if they did what they're theoretically supposed to do, 
and sit down and read them, they couldn't understand them. Like, and right. maybe unless they're super bright, but the yeah. average young user of these platforms, and remember they're platforms that were chosen because they're popular with young users, the average one couldn't even understand them, uh-huh. even if they did take the time to read them, yeah. seek them out and so on. Yeah, so very, very telling. And so they would do that on purpose. Can they actually create the document to make it dumb it down, so to speak? <laughs> yeah, they can. Absolutely. That was one of the most fascinating things about this report, that they looked at the principles for presenting information to make it comprehensible to the average person. And these are principles that commercial entities, including these online platforms, use all the time to try to get people comfortable and engaged and understanding what they need to understand. There are techniques for doing it. You use things like pictograms and simpler ways of presenting information and design and colour and all those sorts of things, you can make information more comprehensible. So it's not like these things have to be incomprehensible. They don't. They can be made more comprehensible. It's one of the really fascinating findings of the report, I think. Right. And what about how long it would take for someone to read the entire document? Well, the average across the 10 platforms was one hour and 46 minutes. And one of the particular platforms would take about five hours or over five hours to read all of the documents that they identified. And if you wanted to read all of the documents for all 10 platforms, 17 hours and 37 minutes it would take you. So we can imagine our friendly local 13-year-old sitting down for 17 hours and 37 minutes to read all of this stuff. It's just, it's fanciful basically. Wow. And Liz, what do you think are the chances that these big tech companies will take up these recommendations picked up by Reset? Well, look, it's very easy to be kind of cynical and to say they're not going to do it. They have no interest in doing it. They have no reason to do it. But I don't think we should be so fatalistic. I think there are plenty of examples in history where people have put enough pressure on business or a sector of business to behave a certain way or change the way they do things. And it can work, especially if you can get the government regulators behind you. And that's obviously what's going to be an important thing here is to get actual government decision makers realising how important all of this stuff is and, and what a big issue it is and how there are solutions. And it might actually be best for it to come from the government rather than relying on the platforms to do it themselves. But I think there is hope and there's certainly reason to engage on all of this stuff and to put the word out and have a look at the report. We'll put the link in the show notes so people can read it for themselves. It's a very easy to read report. They they practice what they preached and they made it all very accessible and, and quite pleasurable to read, in fact. Anyway, once you know what's in there, there's no reason you can't then start putting pressure on your local MP or other decision makers to do something about this if you really think it needs to be done. Great. Thanks, Liz. Pleasure as always, Kim. Well, that's about all we have time for today. Yes, that's a wrap for episode seven. We'd really love to have your feedback, so please get in touch either through our Facebook page or you can email us at outsidethescreenpod at gmail.com. You can also catch up on all things gaming addiction on my website, cgiclinic.com, or even book an appointment for me to assess your child. Or if you really like us, you can help by becoming a subscriber on Substack, 
Details are in the show notes along with a range of further info about the things we've been discussing. Finally, you can rate and review us on your listening platform to make it easier for others to find us. And this, this has been, been the team, team from Outside the Screen. screen. See you next week.